Well, good morning. Glad you're here. There's uh, more breakfast out there if you need it, want it. Probably don't need it, but eat it if you want it. Glad you're here. Uh, we're going to jump into it this morning. We're going to cover uh, a lot of territory, and we're going to cover a pretty interesting character called Melchizedek. Um, one of the guys said, I hope you can say that name, and I can say it, and the key is say it with fervor, and like you know what you're saying, because nobody really knows how to say his name, but it's Melchizedek. That's who we're going to look at, and it's going to be pretty important because he's going to really come up in the next three chapters of this book, so pretty, pretty fascinating character. I'm going to pray for us, and we'll jump into chapter 6 and chapter 7 this morning. So pray with me. Father, we come to you, and we thank you for this opportunity to study your word. Um, Lord, I love studying your word, and I love sharing your word. And I pray that as we talk about it today, that you would show us what you want us to see, that we would hear from you. And Holy Spirit, we ask that you would open our eyes to understand the depth of the message in in these uh, chapters and uh, Jesus, we, we see more of you uh, than we've ever seen before as we open up this incredible topic of Melchizedek. So Lord, we love you and thank you for being here with us. And we pray this in Christ's name, amen. Well, last week, uh, Mitchell spoke and, and he broke my uh, record, world record for length of time. Uh, he, I think he was at 56, 57 minutes and I may break it this morning. Um, this is, this is a fascinating um, chapter. And one of the things that's come out uh, for me is just how incredibly cool God's word is. If you don't enjoy studying God's word, I hope by the time we're done, you, you will. Um, I, I really do love studying God's word because I, I discover something new every time I do. And so as I dug into this chapter on Melchizedek, um, it was just so incredibly cool how God opened up things that I've never seen before and, and has helped me, I think, get a better grasp on what's going on in this chapter and in the chapters to come. Here's one of the things that jumped out at me. Um, as you study the book of Hebrews in particular, it's amazing how many commentators um, go into it looking for Jesus. And well, you should, because Jesus is kind of the topic of the book, right? He's the greater this, the greater that. He's superior than, we've talked about that for weeks now, but here's the danger I think we run into is that it's one thing to look for Christ in the scriptures, especially as we go back to the Old Testament. We're Christians, right? We, we're on this side of the cross, so when we go back and look at the Old Testament, we always kind of look for Christ in the Old Testament, which is great, it's wonderful. But here's the mistake I think we make is when we try to Christianize the Old Testament. And we try to take these teachings and these stories that involve the Old Testament saints, the, the Jewish people, and we try to Christianize them. And what I mean by that is we go back and we try to make them all about the church. And they're not all about the church. Um, they're all about Christ. They point to Christ. We know of a, on two different occasions when Jesus took the Old Testament and he taught people about himself from the Old Testament. He did it with the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. He did it with his own disciples prior to ascending back into heaven. He helped them understand the Old Testament is about me. It's not about the church. And it's most certainly not about Christianity. And, and that's going to be important as we get into this because it's called the letter to the Hebrews. It's not the letter to the Gentiles. Uh, there are plenty of letters to the Gentiles. Paul wrote most of them. But this is a letter to the Hebrews, and, and we've talked about this 
every week since we started, that's the key to understanding this letter. Otherwise, you'll never understand it. You'll try to Christianize it and you'll miss all the points in it. And if you try to Christianize it, it's really confusing because it's not about us. It's about them. It's about their beliefs. It's about, basically, it's about Judaism. I ran across this quote from A.W. Pink, who I love, but I, I, I don't necessarily agree with him. And I think I just don't agree with his wording. Listen to what he says. The theme of our epistle, Hebrews, is the immeasurable superiority of Christianity <laughs> over Judaism. Unless the interpreter keeps this steadily in mind as he proceeds from chapter to chapter and from passage to passage, he is certain to err. He's going to make mistakes. What I don't agree with is that line in the yellow there. Immeasurable superiority of Christianity over Judaism. This, this is the mistake I think we make when we try to compare their religion with our religion. And it's not about religion. It's Jesus versus Judaism. It's about Jesus Christ, their Messiah. It's not about Christianity. It's interesting, if you go back and you study Christianity, the, the term Christian and Christianity the term Christian is found in the book of Acts, and it really was never used except by pagans in referring to those who followed Christ. It was never used by Christians of themselves. It, 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 and it wasn't derogatory, it's just, it literally means little Christ. It, you know, they were followers of Christ. Um, it wasn't until the third century AD that Christians began to use it of themselves. So all throughout the New Testament, first century especially, the early days of the church, the term Christianity wasn't even really used by Christians to speak of themselves. They were Christ followers. So it, this book is really about Jesus versus Judaism. And again, that's the key to understanding. It's not about two religions, Christianity versus Judaism. And we're not in competition because Jesus is the fulfillment of Judaism. Judaism is the religion that God gave the people of Israel and he's the fulfillment of it. It's not, he's not the replacement. See, Judaism is the shadow that pictures the substance of Jesus Christ. It all points to Christ. You know, when we studied Exodus and if you went on and if you read Deuteronomy, if you read uh, Leviticus, you see all this imagery of the tabernacle and of the sacrificial system, and it all points to Jesus. It doesn't point to Christianity. It doesn't point to a better religion versus a bad religion. Judaism was a good religion because it was given by God. It just was not yet complete until Jesus Christ showed up, the Messiah. So it's the shadow versus the substance, the old versus the new. Those two terms come up repeatedly uh, if you want to do something kind of fun, just read through Hebrews, and every time you see old and new, old covenant, new covenant, circle it, and you'll have a lot of circles in your, your Bible because that's what it's all about. It's prophecy versus fulfillment. Everything that the Jews had heard taught by Moses and everything they knew about Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, everything they knew about uh, Egypt was prophetically picturing something else to come, fulfilled in Jesus Christ, the temporal versus the permanent. The whole sacrificial system of the Jews was temporal. Guess what? It, it, it doesn't exist right now, right? There is no temple. There is no sacrificial system. It was temporary because it pointed to something that's permanent, as we'll see in the next three chapters. So as we look at it this morning, I want us to keep in mind that this is about Judaism. Why is it about Judaism? Because he's writing to Jewish 
Christians. And what's the problem? They're thinking about going back to Judaism. They're thinking about going back to this former religion that they had left. And in a certain degree, they hadn't left it because most first century Jews who came to faith in Christ continued to go to the synagogue, continued to make sacrifices. But these guys are thinking that, hey, this thing about the Messiah isn't working out. And so we're going to go back. That's the audience. And again, if we forget that audience and we read Hebrews like we read 1 Corinthians or 2 Corinthians or any of the other letters of Paul, and we read it through a Gentile mindset, we will never understand this book. If anything, it will confuse us and we won't get anything out of it. So we have to keep remembering who they were. They're Jews who've accepted Jesus as what? Their Messiah. See, for us, that, the term Messiah means nothing to us unless we've been taught about who the Messiah was supposed to be. We always think of Jesus as Savior, and that's who he is. He's our Savior. But we never think of him as Gentiles, typically as Messiah. But see, if he's not Messiah, if he's not the Messiah of the Israelites, he's not our Savior. It all began with the Israelites, the chosen people of God. And these people are thinking about going back to Judaism. He's the fulfillment of Judaism. He is their Messiah, but because he hasn't appeared in the way they think he should, he's not brought what they think should come. They're beginning to have second thoughts about this whole thing. And and maybe we need to go back to the old ways. And, And this is We've repeated this over and over again, but I need us to understand it. Otherwise, this little venture into Melchizedek is going to make no sense whatsoever. I mean, it's, it's, you're going to go, what in the world is this guy talking about? Why is he going back to this guy, Melchizedek? Here's the key. The book is filled with references to Judaism. I mean, it's just, it's just filled. And as Gentiles, we read it and it makes our head hurt. You know, we go, what is this all about? This is totally not of help to me. Why did God put this? Why didn't God just send us to the Jews and just leave us alone? Guess what? He put it in the canon of scripture so that we as Gentile Christians living in 21st century America could read it and grow by it. Because if we don't understand these things, these references to Judaism, we really don't understand who Jesus is. We'll never fully understand what his Messiahship means because he is the Messiah. He is the anointed one. He's the long awaited one of the Israelites. We've seen uh, the mention of Jewish prophets early on in chapter one. He talks about, the author talks about the fact that he's greater than the prophets. What prophets? The Jewish prophets. There aren't Gentile prophets. There's only Jewish prophets and he's greater than them. We saw all, all these quotes so far of the Hebrew scriptures. This guy is going back to Psalms repeatedly. He's going back to the Old Testament and he's going to do it today. And and he's using the Old Testament Hebrew scriptures to remind them of who Jesus is. He uses the Hebrew account of the creation, right? He's repeatedly talked about the creation and it's according to the Hebrew Bible. That's their version of creation, and therefore it's our version of creation because we have the Old Testament. So all of these are Hebrew references. He, he talks about Moses. He talks about Aaron. 
to a Gentile, unless they've heard anything about the Old Testament, they don't know who these people are because they're near and dear to the hearts of the Jews. He talks about the Israelite rebellion when they refused to go into the land of Canaan. All of these are references that the Jews in his audience would readily get and they would strike a chord. He's talked about Sabbath rest and then he's gonna talk about again, we brought it up last week, this high priesthood. The high priesthood means nothing to you and I as Gentiles. It, who cares? We're, we're not in that environment. We don't have a high priesthood. We don't even call our pastors priests. We, we are just pastors. Years ago, I did a, a wedding for a young couple and they, they were both from a Catholic background and the, um, they were both Italian. I grew up in New York and I know all about Italians and especially Italian Catholics. And so this was a Christian, Italian, Catholic wedding. It was the most odd thing I've ever done in my life. And the father of the bride kept calling me father. And I kept correcting him. I'm not a father. I'm a father. I have kids, but I'm not the father you're talking about. He goes, oh, it's okay, father. And you know, I'm like, okay, I'm not, I'm not I know. And I could not get him to stop calling me that. Everybody introduced me to that. Hey, this is Father, Father Miller. And I'm like, no, no, I'm just, I'm, I'm just Ken. Just call me Ken. So there's this idea that the priesthood, we just don't get it. We don't understand it. Guess who did? The people to whom he's writing. And, and he's making a point that for them is gonna be shocking when he starts talking about the priesthood, a better priesthood, a different kind of priesthood, because what's the only priesthood these people knew? The Aaronic priesthood, the Levitical priesthood, the priesthood that God established for them. And in this passage, what's gonna happen is he's gonna start talking about a different and better priesthood. Now, you're gonna have to think like a Jew, and I know that may be hard for you, but you're gonna have to think, you're basically criticizing <coughs> our background, our heritage, our history, our religion, because they still consider themselves Jews, right? Otherwise they wouldn't be thinking about going back. So this is gonna be key to understanding what this passage is all about. And what happens is when, when we read this, we, we blow past these kind of passages about Melchizedek and the priesthood because they don't relate to us, but we have to be really careful when they do that. So. What I wanna do is I'm gonna jump backward to chapter six, verses one through eight, because there's something that I think is critical that we understand, because so many of the commentaries I read, I feel like have overly Christianized these verses. And they've made them all about the church when they're really not about the church, they're about Judaism. Because again, who's his audience? Jews who've converted to Christianity. Jews who are thinking about going back to Judaism and he's trying to show them, no, that's not what you need to do. It's about Judaism and we need to see it through the lens of Judaism. So let's just look at it. Here's what he says. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and a faith toward God. He's basically saying, let's move on. And Mitchell covered this last week. Let's move on to maturity. But I think what's important is that he's trying to tie it back to the past, Judaism, their history, what they're thinking about going to. Let's move on from that. Don't go back to it, move on from it. 
He, he goes on, talks about in verse two, uh, instruction about washings, laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, eternal judgment. And so in this passage, he says, let's leave this stuff behind. He, he lists six different things. Leave that behind and cleave to what you now have. Now, see, if we're not careful, we're going to read this as Christians and, and we're going to try to make it about Christianity. It's not about Christianity. It's about Judaism. Leave the, that stuff behind. Leave the old behind and embrace the new. That's what he's talking about. So he says, leave the elementary doctrine of Christ. This, this phrase is difficult to understand, but I think if you take some time to think about it, which I've tried to do, I think it becomes clear what he's talking about. It literally could be translated, having left the word of the beginning of Christ. Having left, you've already left that behind. You've already walked away from the past and you're moving forward, or at least you should be moving forward. You've left, now cleave to what you have and move. Keep moving in the right direction. Remember, this is all about moving, not moving backwards, but moving forwards in their faith. Whose faith? These Jewish Christians. Here's what's really important to me. Notice that he says Christ, he doesn't say Jesus. In most cases in the book of Hebrews, he always refers to Jesus as Christ. Why? because that's the Greek word for Messiah. You know, I joke about this all the time, but I, most of my life growing up in the church, I thought Christ was Jesus' last name. Yeah, he's Jesus Christ. I'm Ken Miller, he's Jesus Christ. He didn't have a middle name. No, it's his title, he's Christ. And it literally means anointed one. He's the Messiah. He is the Messiah of who? Israel, the long-awaited promised one who would come. And he's asking them, he's challenging them, he's pleading with them to move beyond your prior concept of the Messiah. See, as Jews, they all had a concept of the Messiah. When he comes, when this guy shows up, he's gonna do some incredible things. But that view, that Judaistic, that Hebrew perspective of the Messiah was incomplete. It was only partial. Here's what they believed about the, about the Messiah. And it's based on scripture, their scriptures, the Hebrew scriptures. He would be a descendant of David. So they're expecting, they've been expecting for thousands of years, this guy to show up and he would show up and he would be a legitimate descendant of David and he would conquer and he would liberate. Now remember, this is written in the first century when the Israelites are living under Roman rule whether they're in Israel or whether they're in Corinth or doesn't matter where they are because Rome controls everything. And so they're living under Roman rule and they expected when the Messiah shows up, he's going to defeat all their enemies and he's gonna reign on David's throne in Jerusalem. When this letter is written, first century AD, is there a king in Israel? Well, there's a pseudo king, there's Herod the king, but he's an Edomite. He's not even an Israelite. He's kind of appointed by the Roman government. They don't have a king. They don't have a descendant of David on the throne. And when this guy shows up, the Messiah, the Christ, he's gonna restore them to prominence and power. He's gonna put them back on the map, politically speaking, militarily speaking. They're gonna once again be the power they were back during the days of David and Solomon. That's what they're expecting. He's gonna usher in the messianic age. Now, these are all Jewish concepts of the Messiah. 
And this is important to understand because when the Messiah shows up, he's going to basically sit on the throne, defeat all their enemies, put them back in power, and it's going to usher in the messianic age, the age of the Messiah. And Judaism will now become the premier religion on the planet again. So you can understand Messiah supposedly came in the form of Jesus and he's nowhere to be found. Where is he? Well, he ascended on high. They've heard that message. They know he ascended. He's sitting at the right hand of the father. The authors even talked about it. But they're going, but he's supposed to be on the throne of David. What good is it to me if he's sitting on the throne up in heaven? He needs to be on David's throne and he needs to be defeating the the, uh, Romans and putting us back on the map. None of that has happened. And so they're frustrated, they're confused. Nothing has happened according to their concept of the the Messiah. And so the author says, leave that concept behind. That concept is not complete. It will all happen, but according to a different timetable and a different schedule and according to God's plan, you need to embrace God's plan over your limited view of this Messiah. See, theirs was a temporal earthly view of the Messiah. What's interesting is that Jesus had only accomplished one of their ideas about the Messiah. He was a descendant of David. The genealogies in Matthew and Luke Luke make that really, really clear. He is a legitimate descendant of David. But guess what? The Romans are still in power, right? Even these people living outside of Israel, living in Gentile nations are under the control of Rome because Rome controls everything. And they're sitting there going, what kind of Messiah is that? We still don't even have a king. If he's truly the king, why is Herod sitting on the throne? They had no love for Herod. They had no respect for him because he was a puppet of the Romans. So nothing has happened the way they expected it. They're still lacking in power. And these people are probably pretty impoverished because they're living outside of Israel and they're under oppression by their Gentile neighbors and they're living in virtual exile. So before we throw these people under the bus, how stupid for you to go back to Judaism. I can understand why they would go, hey, this hasn't worked out. This Christ, this Messiah is not what we expected. So let's go back to Judaism because maybe this Messiah has not really come yet. They still believed in him. They were still hoping for him. They were just disappointed that Jesus had not turned out to be what they expected. So what does he say in verses one through eight of chapter six? Move forward. Don't go back. Leave the elementary (laughs) principles, teachings of Christ behind. Look what he says. Leave the elementary doctrine of Christ, the teachings of the Messiah behind. And let's move forward. Don't lay a foundation again on that build on the foundation. He is the Christ. Maybe he didn't show up like you wanted. Maybe he does, hasn't done the things you wanted him to do, but he is the Christ. See, the, the, this phrase, elementary doctrine, really can be translated the ABCs, the basics of Christ. See, everything they believed about Christ was true. It just wasn't gonna happen the way they expected or on their timeline. You know, one of the things I get frustrated with Christ about is that he never does things the way I want him to do it. He never does it on my timeline. He doesn't do it according to my will. And that frustrates me. Well, these people are frustrated. 
They don't get it. They don't understand it. And so he says, move forward. Don't lay again a foundation of repentance from dead works, of faith toward God, of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. Look at these six things. These are hard to understand. There's no doubt about it because I've read so many commentaries and they're all over the map. Everybody has a different kind of opinion about what these things are referring to. The vast majority of the commentaries make these about Christian matters. We take these and we say, well, it's about repentance, repentance of sins. We make it about putting your faith. It's faith alone in Christ alone. We make it about washings means baptism. You gotta be baptized. And we take, remember, who's his audience? Jews, what's he talking about? Judaism. And we wanna take it and make it about Christianity. And, and so many of the commentaries make it about, well, you got baptized, you placed your faith in Jesus, you did all the right things, now you need to build on that. Now you need to be, you need to be maturing. And that's true, but that's not what he's saying, I don't believe. And again, it's all about Judaism. So what do these things mean as far as I'm concerned? When he says repentance from dead works, he's not talking about their repentance when they came to faith. He's talking about, don't go back to putting your faith in dead works. Righteousness based on law, law keeping. See, if they're gonna go back to Judaism, what are they going back to? It's all about you keeping the law. Not just one of the laws, two of the laws, 10 of the laws, all of the laws. It's all about you earning righteousness. Don't go back to that. Repentance from dead works. The law could never save anybody. What does he mean when he says faith toward God? I think the key word there is toward. It's not faith in God, it's faith toward God, which means it's all about you. It's all about you doing something, measuring their faithfulness to God by their works. That's what they're about to go back to. Now, all of these apply to you and me as Gentile Christians living in the 21st century because we're capable of doing all of these things, measuring my faithfulness based on what I do for God. And there'll be days when you do some good stuff, you, have, you go to Bible study, you, you have a pretty good day, you, you love your, your wife and your kids, your grandkids, you, 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 I feel pretty good about myself. I'm a pretty good Christian. Well, that's exactly the problem is you've now gone back to your faithfulness rather than the faithfulness of God. How about this one, washings. And this, this one's all over the maps, but it, it, they typically, the commentators turn this into baptisms, that you've been baptized, you've been baptized into Christ. But again, who's he talking to? Jews. What's his point? Judaism. Don't go back to Judaism. Don't go back to ceremonial purification. You go back and read Leviticus and you're going to see all these ceremonies of washing washing yourself before you could make a sacrifice, washing yourself before you could be accepted into the temple or the tabernacle. You always had to go through these ceremonial purifications, which the New Testament tells us never did make you pure. They cleaned the outside, but they couldn't clean the inside. Remember Jesus' statement about the Pharisees, you clean the outside of the cup, but the inside's full of filth. That's what ceremonial cleansings do. Ceremonial purification can only clean the outside, but it can't change the heart. That's what he's talking about. Don't go back to that. Don't go back to the incomplete, the temporal. The, the, that will never do what you expected to do. How about laying on of hands? This one gets really squirrely because they, in order to make it Christian, they try to, to say, well, 
when people came to faith in Christ and Acts, the disciples laid hands on them in order for them to get the Holy Spirit. Well, the problem with that is that that's not true in all cases. You and I don't have to have anybody lay hands on us for us to receive the Holy Spirit. We, we receive the Holy Spirit upon salvation. So we have to really work really hard to make this about Christianity. But if you think about it, what it's really talking about is before anyone could sacrifice an animal in the temple or the tabernacle, they laid their hands on that animal to transfer their sins to the animal so that it could then represent them and be sacrificed. That picture is all throughout Deuteronomy, Leviticus, It's the picture of an incomplete, temporary, partial shadow of greater things to come. So he's saying, don't go back to that. If you think laying your hand on some goat or bull is gonna cleanse you of your sins, you're a fool. Because it never did it to begin with. It was always incomplete. It could never completely eradicate your sin. What could? Jesus. He's the one. He's the sacrifice. And that's going to come up in the chapters as we move forward. So don't go back. How about this one? Resurrection of the dead. Again, we make this a Christian thing and we think about our view of the resurrection, that one day Jesus Christ is going to return and and the dead will be resurrected, those who have faith in Christ. But again, if he's talking to Jews who are thinking about going back to Judaism, it's a totally different thing. They had a concept and a belief in the resurrection. And that concept was when the Messiah comes, all faithful Jews who have died would be raised back to life to live in the Messianic kingdom. That was their concept. Had that happened? No. And so you can understand why they're going, well, this Jesus, this Christ, this Messiah who came, all of my dead relatives are still dead. They haven't, I don't see them anywhere. So this resurrection of the dead hasn't happened. So why would you go back expecting it to happen now? So it's all about going back to concepts that were incomplete, were temporary, not yet fulfilled. And the final one is this, eternal judgment. The Jews had a view of eternal judgment. They believed that when the Messiah comes and he resurrects all the faithful Jews who had ever died over time, that there would be a judgment and all righteous Jews would be rewarded for their good works. That's their view of eternal judgment. Is that the view, our view of eternal judgment? No, it's not based on your righteousness. It's based on the righteousness of Christ. And so what he's saying is, guys, if you're gonna go backwards to Judaism, you gotta understand that you are going back to the basics when you need to be moving on to meat, the meat of the gospel, the meat of who Jesus came to be, the meat of what your salvation is all about. See, that's why it's so important for me that we take the time to study these passages because otherwise we misconstrue what the author's trying to say and we make them all about us. And yeah, we can draw some conclusions and we can draw some things that we can do, but see what they're doing is looking backwards rather than forwards. And he wants them to move on. And I love what he says, though we speak in this way, yet in your case, whose case? These Jewish Christians, he calls them beloved. And I think he does that because he's really kind of beat them up. He's really kind of hammered them. He hasn't said this, but this is my paraphrase. You morons, 
Why would you go back to something like that when you have something so great? Why would you go backwards rather than forwards? And he says, hey, beloved, hey, I love you guys. You're morons, but I love you. Um, we feel sure of better things. That, this, is, this is a pastor speaking. This, this is a guy who loves these people. I think he knows these people. He spent time with these people. He's also a Jew. And he says, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. See, he's saying, guys, you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, the Messiah. And no, things haven't turned out. They don't look the way you thought. They don't gel with your concept of the Messiah, eternal judgment, the resurrection of the dead, washings. You're you're going backwards when you should be going forwards. But he says, we feel sure of better things, your salvation. See, I think he's telling them, I know you're saved. I know you placed your faith in Jesus Christ. Hang on to that like a dog with a rag and move forward. See, sometimes when we get tested in our faith, when things don't go the way we should, and it can show up in all kinds of forms. You could get a bad prognosis from the doctor. You could be told you have cancer or you're diagnosed with Parkinson's or you've got dementia or your wife does or something's gonna happen in your life. And the temptation is gonna be, this isn't what I signed up for. And what this author would say to you is, hang on to what you've got and move forward. He's not done yet. He's not finished yet. It's a better salvation. That was an incomplete salvation. It could never save you. He can and he will. And in their case, he says he has because it's determined by faith, not works. See, it's all about their faith in Jesus Christ. It's dependence on Christ, not self. Judaism was really at the end of the day about self. It was about you doing these things. You go back to Deuteronomy. If you do these things, I will bless you. If you don't do these things, I will curse you. That's pretty much about you, right? That puts all the onus on you. You got to measure up or you will either be blessed or cursed. But Christianity, what we believe is about Christ, what Christ has done. So it's about faith. It's not about self. It's based on his sacrifice, not my sacrifice. That whole idea of laying on of hands is you transferring your sins onto an animal that you then sacrifice or the priest sacrifice on your behalf so that you can have your sins forgiven. You choose the animal, you transfer the sins, he sacrifices it, and your sins are forgiven for the year. That's about you. But he goes, but it doesn't work. It's temporary, it's incomplete. This salvation is comprehensive and not partial. Again, for me, it makes so much more sense now to read this book and understand that this is a Jew, a Christian Jew writing to Christian Jews telling them that Judaism ain't gonna work. You can't go back to Judaism because what you've accepted in Jesus Christ is eternal, that's temporary. It was always meant to be temporary. It's a, it's a shadow of greater things to come, so don't go back to it. He goes on and says, we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Hope until the end. Mitchell hit on this last week. And it's this idea of stay the course. And again, not, not to belabor the point, but don't go backwards, move forward. Regardless of what you see, move forward. Hope until the end. 
inherit the promises. And this, this sets up everything else we're going to look at. He's telling them that God has given you promises and you will inherit those promises, but you've got to keep keeping on. And going back to Judaism isn't going to do it. So his point is, don't put your faith in Judaism. Put your faith in Jesus because he's the fulfillment of all the promises of God. Trust God. And then he's going to use Abraham as, a, as an example. Once again, a, a, a reference to Judaism. Their patriarch, the father of the Hebrew people, they know this story, the story he's about to recount. And it's the story of when God told Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac. We probably know that story. Uh, we've heard it in Sunday school. You've probably heard a message about it. I've taught it when we did Genesis. We, we know the story, but I don't think it resonates with us as much as it does to them because guess who they are? They are the descendants of Isaac. They are the result of this story. And it means a whole lot to them. So when they read this story, when they hear the story of God commanding Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac, it strikes a chord with them because if he had completed that task, they wouldn't exist. They wouldn't be around. In Genesis 22, it says, take your son, Abraham, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer the, him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Now, if you're familiar with the story, this is, this is a shocking moment in the life of Abraham. This is a shocking moment where his God comes to him and says, take the one, the son I gave you that you've been waiting for decades to receive and kill him. I mean, it's just, it's crazy. I remember as a kid hearing this story and I'm going, really? What kind of God is that? What kind of God would command a father to kill his own son? This is a powerful moment in the life of Abraham. He, he's telling him to kill the child of the promise. Again, he and his wife, they're old. They've been old for a long time. She's barren. She's been barren since the day they got married. They can't have kids. They've been waiting on this promise to be fulfilled. And he is the child of the promise. God had told Abraham, I'm gonna make you the father of a multitude of nations. In other words, you're gonna bear so many children that they're gonna propagate and nations will come from your loins. And he's like, well, that's great. I got a barren wife and we're both old. Where is he? What's going on with that? And he waited decade after decade. And he trusts God. We know that from chapter 11 of Hebrews, he kept having faith in God. Doesn't mean he didn't stumble. Doesn't, doesn't mean when his wife came and said, you know what? I can't give you a child. So go into my handmaiden Hagar. He didn't jump on that like, you know, a fly on, you know what? He's like, honey, that's a great idea. Go into your handmaiden? Yeah. Why didn't you come up with this idea sooner? That was not God's plan. And she did produce a son, but it wasn't the child of the promise. See, he did struggle in faith, but he kept believing that somehow God's gonna fulfill this promise despite her barrenness, despite their advanced years. And God did. God gave them that son. But when he first heard the news that God's gonna give him a son, here's what happened. He fell on his face, laughed and said to himself, shall a child be born to a man who's 100 years old? Shall Sarah, who's 99, 90 years old, bear a child? God, are you kidding me? Have you lost your mind? Do you not understand what's going on here? Do, do I need to inform you of the problem, the, the, the 
sheer nature of the problem. And Abraham says, oh, that Ishmael might live before you. The child, the son that he had through Hagar, the Egyptian handmaiden. And God said, no, no. Sarah, your wife shall bear a son and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. This is a promise from God, all right? He's telling him, this is what I'm going to do. It ain't gonna be Ishmael. It's not gonna be your manservant. It's gonna be Isaac. I'm gonna give you a son. You're gonna call his name Isaac and I will fulfill my promises through him. So look at verses nine through 10. When they came to the place of which God had told them, this is after he says, take that child who's now been born, who's probably a teenager, and I want you to kill him. And Abram takes him, he loads a donkey, puts wood on it, takes his son, a couple of servants. They head to where he's told to go. He builds an altar. He lays the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. And this passage blows me away. God has never asked me to do anything remotely like this. And I have to ask, would I? Would I do it? Guys, God's asked me to let go of some pretty silly things. And I hang on to them like a dog with a rag. Nope, not giving that up. I like that. I don't want to give that up. He's asking him to kill the hope of the future. And we know from... Hebrews chapter 11, which we'll look at later, that Abraham is ready and prepared to go through with it because he believes that God, if he kills his son, will restore him back to life. He's so assured of the promise of God that he's willing to kill his son because he can bring him back to life and still fulfill his promise. He's ready to kill his own son. So what happens? By myself, I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this, what? (laughs) Raise that knife and he's really ready to kill his son, because you've done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply you, your offspring as the stars of heaven, as the sand that is on the seashore. Don't miss that phrase. I will surely bless you. I will surely multiply you. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. This is Genesis chapter 22. When you read where we are right now in Hebrews, the author is going back to that story and he's reminding the Israelites of what happened with Abraham and what God promised to Abraham as a result of his faithfulness, his willingness to take the life of his son. He says, when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself saying, surely I will bless you and multiply you. That's a quote from Genesis chapter 22. This is now the first century, and this is the author of Hebrews writing to these first century Jewish Christians, and he's reminding them of the promise that God made to their patriarch when he showed faith in the promises of God and was willing to kill his son. What did God say? Because of what you've done, because you believe, because you put your hope in the promise, I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. What's the promise he received? His son. His son was there. His son was alive. His son could fulfill all that God had ordained him to fulfill. And the people of Israel to whom this guy is writing are the fulfillment of that promise. They're there. We're Israelites. Because Abraham had faith, the promise was fulfilled and we exist. Having patiently waited and obtained the promise, 
So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with oath. He made an oath and he says, listen, because you've done this, because you've had faith in me, because you put your faith in the promises, I will accomplish it. See, it's impossible for God to lie. So we, these Jewish Christians who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. See, now he's brought it for, fast forward. Hey, that's what, most, uh, that's what Abraham did. Are you willing to put your faith in the promise of God that he's given you through the Messiah, the chosen one, the son who came, who died, who rose again? See, Isaac is kind of a foreshadowing of Jesus because to a certain degree, he rose again. He was this close to death, but he lives. Jesus Christ literally died and rose again. And we should place our hope in him. Hold fast to the hope set before us. Don't go backwards, go forwards. So he says, we have this sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. See, this, this is, I know you're thinking, we just now got to Melchizedek. But this is all set up, guys. Because all of this has a a method to the madness. He's gone back to Abraham in order that they might understand Melchizedek. These Jews would have known about Melchizedek. He was part of their history. They knew of his encounter. But what this guy's doing is he's giving them information they don't have. Something about Melchizedek they never knew. And he's going to expand on it. He's bigger and better than you ever imagined. He's more important than you ever gave him credit for. And so he reaches back into the past again and he dredges up this guy named Melchizedek, Mr. Melchizedek. And for us, we go, I don't even know how to say his name and I don't really care. What's he he have to do with me? He has everything to do with you. See, the Bible is so rich, it's so deep, it's so important. He's only mentioned twice in the, the whole Old Testament for a total of, I think, seven verses. And yet, to the author of Hebrews, he's pretty important. You have to go all the way back to Genesis chapter 14. That's his first mention. And then Psalm 110, verse four. Those are the only mentions of Melchizedek in the Old Testament. He's mentioned repeatedly in the New Testament, like here in Hebrews. So what's the point? He picks up another story from the life of Abraham. Remember, he's writing to these people, first century Jews who've placed their faith in the Messiah, who are thinking about going to Ju- back to Judaism. And he says, hey, let's, let's talk about Melchizedek for a while. And they're going, Melchizedek? What, what's the point of Melchizedek? And he says, for this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the most high God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. Again, this is a story they're very, very familiar with. You may not be familiar with the story of Melchizedek unless you've read through Genesis or you went through our series we did on Genesis. But Melchizedek shows up at a, just out of, the, out of nowhere, literally out of nowhere in the life of Abraham after he had defeated five kings from the north who had attacked and captured the city of Sodom where his nephew lived. It's a pretty fascinating story. It's only a few verses, but this guy shows up in the life of Abraham and he says, he is first by translation of his name 
is the king of righteousness. That's what his name, Mel, name Melchizedek means. So this is the author explaining to these Jews, there's something you need to know about Melchizedek, this obscure, unknown character that showed up for a very brief moment in time in the life of Abraham, your patriarch. His name means king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem. That is the king of peace. Those are just statements of fact about this guy. That's who he is. He's king of righteousness by virtue of the name, his name mean, mean, and then he's the king of Salem. He's the king of peace. Then he goes on and he says, he's without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning or days or end of life, but resembling the son of God, he continues to priest forever. What in the world does that mean? That makes my head hurt. And it made their head hurt. It's interesting if you go back, you can look at um, uh, Jewish tradition during the... Uh, first, second, and third century, the rabbis would try to figure out all of this. And they came up with all kinds of crazy ideas. They thought he was some kind of angelic being. They thought he, um, there are many who believed him to be the pre-incarnate Christ. They, they came up with all kinds of ideas about who this guy was. I think he was just a man. But then what do we do with this? He's without father, without mother, genealogy. He has no beginning or end. He doesn't seem to die. What's going on here? And he resembles the son of God. See, this is the author explaining to these people, man, there's more about Melchizedek than you understand. He's so important. See, he lived during the days of Abraham and Melchizedek's his title. He's a king. He's the king of righteousness. He ruled over Salem, which means peace. And it's where it eventually became Jerusalem. I hope you're already beginning to see how he is a picture of a foreshadowing of the king of righteousness the king of peace, who will one day rule, rule in Jerusalem. So this is who this guy was. And at this point, I think they're just like you. They're going, okay, I've already got a headache. What, what's your point? What, what are you trying to say? What's so important about this Melchizedek? He's also a priest. And, and that's hugely important because that's the transition this guy is about to make. Away from their knowledge of priesthood, what they knew, the Aaronic Levitical priesthood, to a different kind of priesthood. It says he's Melchizedek, priest of the Most High God, the, the priest of Elohim, Jehovah. He, he is a priest, but he's a Jebusite. He's not an Israelite. And they're going, whoa, whoa, that's impossible. He can't be a priest. He's not a Levite. Because as Jews, they know based on Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy that only Levites could be priests. And so already they're beginning to have a disconnect. See, this is all news to them. They're, they're not, they haven't put this together and now they're getting it put together and it's really confusing them. But when this guy shows up, there is no Levitical priesthood, right? Because the Levites don't exist. This is pre-law. This is pre-sacrificial system. So he's gone all the way back to the past. And he says, he's without father, mother, genealogy, having no beginning of end. What's he saying here? Th this is so important. He's saying this guy was a different kind of priest altogether. He's not like the Levitical priest. There's no family tree provided in this passage in Genesis 14, which is pretty amazing if you've read Genesis because everybody gets a family tree. Family trees are all over the book of Genesis and this guy gets nothing. No lineage, no father, no mother, no birth date, 
no death date. We, we're told nothing about this guy. All we know is he's a king and a priest and he shows up. That's all we know. We don't, we don't even know who his heirs are. And if you're a priest, at least according to the Levitical priesthood, it was important to have heirs because when you died, your sons became the next priest in the line. But this guy, we, we don't hear anything. We, we don't know any details about his life. So in this sense, what the author is saying, because God didn't inspire Moses to include it in the story, God wanted him to appear in such a way that his priesthood never ended. He, he, we're not told he died, so technically he's still a priest. But it doesn't mean he's eternal. This is where the rabbis got kind of off into the weeds. He's not eternal. He's not divine. But in a book filled with genealogies, he doesn't get one. He, he, he doesn't get a genealogy. Why? It's the inspiration of God. God withheld all that information. And now in the first century, by, by this Holy Spirit-inspired author, he's explaining who he was and what he represents. He foreshadows another king priest. He was a picture of a priest to come, a king priest to come. Look at chapter seven, verses 15 through 16. A different priest who is like Melchizedek has appeared. Who? He goes right on and says, Jesus became a priest, not by meeting the physical requirement of belonging to the tribe of Levi, but by the power of a life that cannot be destroyed. Jesus Christ died, but rose again. Jesus Christ is eternal. Melchizedek was a picture of that. But guess what? He wasn't a Levite. He's not according to the law. He's not according to the old covenant. It's a whole new kind of priest, king. See, that's his whole point. Why is he belaboring this point? Don't go back to the old. Don't go back to the Levitical system. You've got a priest who's not a Levite. He's better than, he's superior than. Melchizedek was a foreshadowing of the one to come and he's restored that priesthood. He's the new Melchizedek, so to speak. He is the one who has come outside of the Levitical priesthood, outside of the old covenant to do something new and better. See, Jesus was from the tribe of Judah. But according to the law, the old covenant, you had to be a Levite to be a priest. See, Jesus doesn't have to operate according to that. Jesus is above that. He is the author of the law. He is above the law. He can do whatever he deems right and just. And so he serves as their high priest. See, this whole thing with Melchizedek is to show us that he came before the law was given. That's why it says, for it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Jesus Christ is their high priest. They don't need to go back. It would be stupid to go back. Why? Because the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing office. In other words, they had to propagate themselves because they were always dying. But see, he's permanent. Jesus Christ is the permanent priest because he continues forever. Consequently, he's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession. He's permanent. He lasts forever. It's not based on law keeping. In other words, you don't even have to keep the law because it's all based on what he's done. No more ceremonial purification, no more blood sacrifices. He is the new and better priest, fully human, yet fully divine, eternal and permanent. And we'll close with this. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, not Aaron, not Caiaphas, not Ananias, not, not any of those, but this high priest, 
holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, in other words, God's word, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. That's the point. That's what the author's trying to get us to understand. So here's, here's your, your questions. This is where, it, if we're gonna Christianize it, let's do it right now. What do we do with this? Look at those verses we just read. They're meant to provide us, you and I, with encouragement as 21st century Christians, Gentile Christians. Do they? Do all those statements about Jesus in those last verses we just read encourage you? How? that he's holy, that he's innocent, that he's righteous. How should they encourage us? And what difference does it make that Jesus is holy, innocent, sinless, separated from sinners, and is exalted above the heavens? Why should that matter to us right now as we go through this life? Then finally, why would a return to Judaism, legalism, be so detrimental to their faith and ours? And guys, whether you realize it or not, want to admit it or not, you, you are so tempted every day to go back to legalism law-keeping, doing the right thing, trying to keep God happy, trying to earn favor with God. When you already have favor with God, move forward. Don't go back, move forward. <coughs> Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this incredible passage. I know this is like drinking from a fire hose for every guy in this room, but I pray that we could make the transition that it was critical that Jesus come as the next Melchizedek. Outside of the law, outside of the covenant, outside of the Levitical priesthood, a different kind of priest, a better priest, the priest king, who is truly holy, innocent, righteous, and permanent, not temporary. And Lord, because of that, we can have hope that everything he said he would do, he will do. Every promise he has made, he will fulfill. And we can move forward instead of backwards in our faith. And I pray all of this in Christ's name, amen.